Late Night Conversations, Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Social Conversations. Let's welcome our A-team guest who's no stranger to the studio. Love having her on air because uh, she helps us to uproot, you know, this this dark cloud of bitterness when it comes to the way we behave in the workplace and in 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 parastatals uh, around the globe. Her name is Penny Milner-Smythe and she is from Ethical Ways and uh, she's also a workplace ethics and anti-corruption specialist. Um, uh, you know, I, I've, I enjoy every session with her and I know today as we speak about unconscious bias, we are going to have our uh, our perspective opened up to a new level. Penny, thank you very much for joining us. Lovely to be with you again and the A-team. Thank you, Patricia. So over the past couple of weeks, Penny, we have been focusing on topics that, amongst other things, help to raise our collective awareness of our human vulnerability to acting against our better judgment, right? We are vulnerable to this. And we may not be providing all the answers, but one thing for certain, um, without an awareness of our vulnerability, we become victims of our impulses. And um, with awareness, we can recognize situations of ethical risks and also make a choice as to whether we are going to do the right thing or not. After all, it is up to us to make that choice. So tonight, you're going to be helping us navigate and understand unconscious bias and its effect on whether or not we respond in an ethical way to a situation we find ourselves in. So let's start here. Help us understand what an unconscious bias is, please, Penny. I will. Many listeners will be familiar with the concept of unconscious bias as it's discussed so often in the context of understanding prejudice. Um, Unconscious bias is a phenomenon that affects many aspects of our lives and essentially relates to um, the shortcuts in thinking and decision-making that we um, undertake And these shortcuts are not necessarily, by definition, harmful. They can be shortcuts that are life-saving, that are self-preservative, where in the midst of a very busy day or a very stressful and dangerous situation, we seize upon the bare minimum of facts, pull those together and make a quick and prompt decision. And in that way, it's a great strength that we have. But, Patricia, the challenge with unconscious bias or cognitive bias, thinking bias, as we say, is that whenever we use the skill, call it a strength or a capacity, inappropriately, it becomes a weakness. And, in fact, it becomes extremely harmful. And so one of the things we need to do is to understand the concept of cognitive bias, is to understand that it is a strength and a weakness, and to look at the fact that we need to be aware and then use this awareness to make more conscious choices in our day-to-day responses, ourselves to situations and to others, other people. So, Penny, as you're describing this idea of cognitive or unconscious bias, I'm reminded of the discussion we have had um, not so long ago about the brain and the way it can you know, disrupt rational thought. 
I'm also reminded of our discussion about blindly following instruction despite the fact that they may be unethical. How do, does tonight's subject relate to our earlier discussions? That's so interesting, Patricia. The brain, as we discussed, um, has many functions. One of it is to monitor threats that we might be experiencing in the environment in order that we can take very prompt action in response to potential harm. In that way, it's life-preserving and self-preservative. The interesting thing about the brain is that it is receiving information and influencing our response in a situation almost before we become consciously aware of the fact that we are facing a situation that requires a response. Mm. So the brain is hugely um, powerful here, as is um, our upbringing, the messages that are strongly inculcated to us um, in our early years. Um, and certainly, we spoke a lot about blind obedience and how that can land us in trouble. This is, in fact, one of the first cognitive biases that I'd like to talk about that can cause us to respond unethically. And that's simply called the obedience bias. And the obedience bias obviously has its origin in those early formative experiences where we learn from our caregivers that we must listen up no matter what and there'll be severe consequences if we don't. And so, as we saw with the problem of blind obedience, when we obey an instruction almost by default, by rote, we are acting unthinkingly. We are just responding because we have this bias to be obedient, which is very important and essential in life in many situations. But of course, if we apply it unthinkingly, it can lead us to act against our better judgment. Now, Penny, what about situations that bring out the opposite effect, right? What <laughs> I have seen is sometimes that people seem to do the opposite of what is asked of them deliberately. That's such a good observation. Um, you know, we often say that um, what, is the, what, what, what is the similarity between a toddler and a teenager? Well, the similarity is the kind of defiance that you experience when trying to give an instruction or require particular behavior from a toddler or a teenager. And that kind of defiance in the face of being instructed is interestingly something that lingers with us, some of us to a greater extent than others, throughout our lives. And as an unconscious bias, we call this reactance, actually. Technically, we call it psychological reactance. And it is our bias towards objecting in principle to anything that seems to limit our freedoms, that seems to limit our options. So when a person tells us we might do something for X and Y good reason, we immediately don't want to. And in fact, we've most recently had the example of um, certain people, um, for example, responding very negatively to a mandate to be vaccinated, as an example. Now, in some instances for people, that has been an instinctive rejection of a narrowing of their options. Um, in the workplace, when new policies are implemented, we have routinely a percentage of people who will unthinkingly object 
to the policy without even analyzing its purpose or its value, simply because it's a restriction of their freedom. But what about the influence of peer pressure then, Penny? I mean, as parents, I know we all worry about the company our children keep, and I'm I'm one such parent. And whether there will be a good influence on them or not, will they lead them astray or not? So some people, even in the workplace, fall into this um, peer pressure and end up doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. You're right, and it's more than that. We all have in us, what we call the conformity bias. It's the um, impulse or the sense that we must act in a way that fits in, um, where there is the sense that if we stand out or take a different position, we may suffer rejection, that there is safety in numbers, as an example. Of course, it's got deep social origins, as if we will understand um, we've all been taught by our caregivers um, to, uh, you know, fit in. And the problem with this is that it can be the case that what the group are doing is not what one should be doing. I read a great quote the other day that I thought was so brilliant when it comes to ethics, and it said this, it's better to walk alone than with a crowd going in the wrong direction. It's better to walk alone than with the mm. crowd going in the wrong direction. And I thought, that's helpful because our impulse is that there's safety in numbers. We must just go with the flow. And, of course, if the flow is going in the wrong direction, that's going to potentially come back at us. Oh, come back and bite us, at least. That's <laughs> one thing true. we should be aware of. So, so yeah. now, you know, Penny, talking of crowds, right, is there a difference in how we behave in a crowd situation as compared to in a more intimate one, on uh, one situation? Well, maybe this is a good uh, point for me to talk about what we call the bystander effect, which records the fact that when we find ourselves in a one-on-one situation and seeing someone needing help, we're highly likely to render the help required. But studies have shown repeatedly that when we find ourselves in a group situation and one member of that group is clearly needing help, we're much more likely to um, not take action um, and to make the assumption that somebody else will deal with the matter. Um, so, yes, we can be the good altruistic helping person in a small situation, small group or intimate situation, and in a larger group situation, simply walk away and feel completely comfortable about not taking action. Uh, one of the consequences in organizations is the fact that there can be um, things that everybody knows that are going wrong but nobody thinks to take a stand and to bring the matter to the attention of people who need to take action. So, yeah, when we're in a group, we might simply be inactive, whereas if it were up to us on our own, we would take some ethical action. Mm. So sometimes it is good for us to have that moment of silence before making a a decision. Um, As our conversation is progressing, I am getting this feeling of restrictions that seem to apply to our ethical decision-making, Penny. 
that's right, Patricia. Really what we've been doing over raising the bar over the last four months is to talk about the fact that while we judge ourselves on our intentions, the reality is we are much more influenced by our environment when it comes to our ethical conduct than we like to think. And so these cognitive biases are impulses or instincts almost that um, compel us to act or not act, as we've seen. Um, and this can be in contrary to what in the cold light of day with careful consideration we would have um, done. And we did have a discussion about one of the cognitive biases, and that is simply called tunnel vision. It's that bias where we focus on something narrowly without considering the context, because what we're focusing on is so compelling. Uh, we link that to the scarcity effect, where what we are focused on is something that is so deeply important to us. Um, money, um, in the case of being very short of money, food, in mm. the case of being hungry. Uh, these are all phenomena that can force us to disregard the other factors at play until sometimes it's too late when it comes to ethical conduct. You know, I'm also getting a sense that as humans, we are strongly um, influenced by our fears. And I'm sure uh, fear or change is a major driver of our behavior, Penny. I mean, when you're talking about food, um, we're scared of going hungry. And this could lead us to doing unethical things. There's no doubt about that. So fear is a major driver when it comes to all of these cognitive biases. Um, essentially, what they do is they... Um, enable us or disable us by uh, focusing our attention on those few characteristics of a situation that almost give us a pattern or a recipe, and we apply that recipe, um, often captured in our mind in the form of maxims like go with the flow or um, whatever the case may be, don't stand out um, and, and can lead us into to trouble. And one of the interesting things for me, Patricia, is a bias that we call the status quo bias. Um, it seems that the need for predictability is such a profound human need, this need to do everything we can to maintain how things are now and keep that predictable, can similarly paralyze us uh, you know, in many situations, and we talk about people, for example, in uh, negative, destructive relationships who choose to stay in those relationships. And amongst the reasons um, we understand is the status quo bias, um, which says, I would actually rather face what I know and be unhappy than face uncertainty. Um, and that gives us an idea about how strong the status quo bias is. So a fear is almost like an Achilles heel for all of us, especially if we are not conscious when we are making a decision. But are there other ways that we can try to maintain the status quo that you talk about, Penny? Well, maybe one of the last biases I should mention is the reciprocity bias. This can lead us into great trouble. It's a very important uh, message we learn 
when we are young that if people give to us, we must give in return. This is an important societal value. It's very important for children to learn reciprocity. But it is so ingrained into us that there are times when people do things for us and we're so compelled to return a favor that we can find ourselves acting unethically in the process. A classic example is a customer who gives a gift to someone working in procurement and the procurement officer feels compelled to uh, direct the tender or the um, proposal in their direction uh, as a thanks. And the original intention is not corrupt. It's really that reciprocity. So, in fact, the reciprocity bias is a perfect example of an important social skill and belief that we have inculcated into us in our youth that inappropriately applied can lead us down the wrong path when it comes to ethics at work. Mm. Now, okay, I hear you, but I can't help (laughs) feeling that there are times when we consciously ignore the ethical dimension. Is that a different challenge to the unconscious bias uh, that we are discussing this evening, Penny? Wow. Well, yes, what you're talking about is really willful blindness or willful ignorance as Mm. opposed to the unconscious blindness that we're talking about when it comes to these cognitive biases. Now, the minute you know that a bias might be operating and you become aware of it, you're not unconscious anymore. You are aware. And so what we have are some situations where people will look at a situation and because a particular direction or decision is self-serving for them, they will consciously disregard any information that could challenge their way forward. And so we find people being what we call willfully blind when they decide to pursue a course of self-serving action um, despite knowing that there is other information that they should take into consideration and they choose to block that information out and not to take it into consideration. So yes, it's a great point. A big difference between being willfully blind and unconsciously blind. All right, so there is a difference. I'm glad that we are learning so much. So how can um, you summarize for us the key learnings from our discussion this evening, Penny? It's quite simple. We see ourselves as good people, and we are good people. We know we're committed to being solid citizens, to being positive, constructive, good members of society. But what we need to do to fulfill that goal, Patricia, is to recognize that we all have what seem to be instinctive responses, but are not always the best response when it comes to being our best ethical selves. And how can our A-teamers be in touch with you, especially if they've got some ethical challenges that they want to just discuss Uh, with you? Well, they can always contact me um, by email at penny at ethicalways.co.za. Connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Excellent. Penny, I know that uh, we are going to be um, continuing with Raising the Bar, but it's now going to be the first Monday of every month. So the first Monday of uh, June will be the 6th, and that's when we'll talk to you again to ensure that uh, we keep at the top of our minds this uh, issue of being ethical, even in the small things. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, and good night, Patricia.